I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on a journey through the book of Judges. Here on the Bible Book Club. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. If you've just found us for the first time, welcome to the Bible Book Club Season 7, The Book of Judges. For those of you who are new, we call this podcast The Bible Book Club because the Bible is the number one selling book of all time. It has to be read and it is fascinating to discuss, especially with friends. <laughs> we make it easy for you to do both. We read and discuss. You download and listen wherever you are, while you drive, while you work out, fold the laundry, whatever you want to do. You listen and we'll discuss. Nice. Okay, let's recap where we've been because we are in season seven and let's talk about where we are. How does the book of Judges fit into history and the Bible? So Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament and the Old Testament is based on the books of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Tanakh. And we covered that a lot when we were working through the the, um, the Torah. Now the Old Testament as we know it in the Christian Bible was compiled after Jesus and was a reorganization of the Tanakh with five divisions rather than the three in the Tanakh. The Pentateuch is the first five books. That's the Greek name for um, the Torah, which we covered in seasons one through five of the Bible Book Club podcast. The history books, that's where we are now, are the next 12 books and are aptly named because they describe Israel's history in Canaan. Now, the book of Joshua, season six, was the first history book that we discussed. The book of Judges is only our second of the 12 history books. After that, we have poetry books. There's five of those. The major prophets, there's five of those. And the minor prophets. Now, we have charts that will break down all the books in the Old Testament. And we will put those in the show notes. Or you can go to susanme.com forward slash podcast. Yeah. And you'll get all that in your head. It's so visual. And then it really makes sense. Okay. Let's talk about this book, the book of Judges. The author of Judges is unknown. Tradition ascribes the book to Samuel, who possibly could have assembled the accounts with the help of Nathan and Gad, all of whom lived during David's time. There are several expressions throughout the book of Judges. And that expression, they say, is in those days, Israel had no king. Like they're looking back on right. it. Right. They, like they had a king now. And in those days, there was no king. And so that's why they think it was written looking back by Samuel. And we're going to get to Samuel soon. The book of Judges will be different from the last five books we've discussed because there will be a lot of different heroes and not just one main superstar like Moses or Joshua. Now, the theme or purpose of the book is this. The story of Judges is the story of the Israelites' tragic propensity to sin, also called the human condition. And their desperate need for God's grace. That's it. It's pretty simple. Now, it's going to cover a lot of different things and kind of go up and down. But that's that's really what God is trying to show in this story. That Israel had a tragic propensity to sin. And that we do too. It's the human condition. Um, and that we need God's grace. Which So it's kind of foreshadowing Jesus. Exactly. It's really laying out why God had this bigger plan of Jesus Christ. 
the time period of Judges. Let's talk about that. We are in the period of the nation of Israel, which began around 1446 BC when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. Now we're also going to have a chart, a timeline of the Old Testament history we'll put in the show notes so you can track along with us. The period of the nation of Israel will last until around 930 BC when Israel will divide into two kingdoms. Well, right now they're one nation. Our story about the judges of Israel takes place somewhere between 1400 to 1000 BC. Now, if you're keeping track of where we are in time and space, we have that new timeline I told you about of the Old Testament in the show notes. And we also have a map of the promised land that that um, we will be roaming around in through judges. So if you want to kind of track where they're going all the time, if we you're have visual that like me and you <laughs> need to see it <laughs> exactly to understand where it. were they <laughs> judges. I forewarn you, is one of the darkest books in Israel's history. So brace yourself. The Israelites fall into a cycle of sin and idolatry. The results and consequences are not pleasant. The cycle of sin went like this. The Israelites have a time of peace, followed by a period of sinning against God. Then God gave them over to their enemies, the Canaanites, Amalekites, Ammonites, Midianites, Philistines, etc. The people would become miserably oppressed and cry out to God to save them. Then God would send them a judge to deliver them. This is going to happen several times. And then peace would be restored for a time. Then it would start all over again. Oh, I feel like you kind of just described my life. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It so much applies to us today. All right. So to turn the people back to himself, God sends these judges. That's the instrument he uses to convict them. Unlike, you know, we had Joshua and Moses long term before, and we're going to cycle through some people here. A judge is not what we think. They were men and women who saved the Israelites from the Canaanites. They were military leaders who passionately defended the one true God and rallied the people to fight for the land and to worship God only. Judges were like spiritual military leaders, kind of like Joshua was. After this book, the judges kind of morphed into the prophets. In fact, Samuel is both. He is the last judge and the first prophet. So stay tuned for more on Samuel in seasons 9 and 10. The judges are not perfect, and they make their own mistakes, even aside from the Israelites. And it is obvious that there really is only one true hero in this book of Judges, and it's God. He's the only one that really gets it right. Deborah does pretty good, though. The theme verse for Judges accurately sums up the, the problem in this book. From It's it's actually said twice in Judges 17.6 and again in 21.25. It says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So M- Moses and Joshua are gone. And without a strong leader, the Israelites did what they saw fit and what they thought was right for them in their circumstance. And we learn that what they want is evil. If we had a theme phrase, like part of a verse, this phrase is repeated seven times in Judges. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and... Dot, dot, dot. Every time it's a little, something a little different. What exactly did they do each time they did evil in the eyes of the Lord? That is where our story begins. 
This is the story of Judges, the story of the Israelites' tragic propensity to sin and their desperate need for God's grace, starting in chapter 1. The author is going to give us an introduction and recap of the events of Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. God's promise is clear as day. God has already, past tense, given the Canaanites into their hands, just as he did for Joshua. But they do have to go up, show up, take part, take the first step. Remember, this covenant partnership involves two parties, God and Israel. Israel has to show up, but they've already won because God's delivered them. And the same is true for you. Exactly. Verse three, the men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. So in verse two, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Now, Judah and Simeon were full blood brothers, both the sons of Jacob and Leah. So it is not surprising that these tribes are close. Additionally, the tribe of Simeon was allotted land inside the territory of Judah because Simeon, the the patriarch of this tribe, had sinned. And Jacob, his father, decreed that the tribe's people must be scattered. So they're actually scattered in different cities within Judah. So it's it's not surprising that Judah kind of turned to Simeon and like, you, you guys live with us, so you're going up too. But God had said, Judah shall go up. He did not say Judah and Simeon. And so what was Judah thinking? I'm not sure. On a military level, it was totally unnecessary because Judah is the largest and the leading tribe of Israel. And Simeon is one of the smallest. So it's not like Judah needed Simeon. But up until now, every time they were going on a a campaign, even when Joshua was alive, they would go, go get your brothers and tell them to come out here and help us fight these mean Canaanites. Or Amorites, or whoever they were trying to fight. Yeah, but the title for this less this episode is Israelite, sometimes faithful, often flawed, and this was a slight flaw. He told Judah, you know, to go, and not that anything bad's going to happen because it says that they're pretty successful. But it it is remarked that they lacked a little bit of faith mm. in asking Simeon to go. So in Israel's first command from God without Joshua, the leading tribe makes a slight slip and sets the stage for all of Israel to do as, as they, they see fit. fit. Verse four, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Judah is successful. I don't know why they did the whole hands and you know fingers it's and toes. Kind of brutal. It's, it is kind of brutal, but 
There's no mention of Simeon helping, and their conquest is thorough. Note, they do, you know, kind of do the harem warfare. The Israelites were commanded by God in Joshua to execute harem warfare. Now, remember, we talked about this in harem in past uh, seasons. In harem warfare, everything and everyone in a specific area was dedicated for destruction. Harem was harsh, but it was necessary during this time period, and it served the important purpose of eliminating the temptation to worship Canaanite gods. So this was not something the Israelites did all the time, but this is what God is commanding at this time. And God had decreed to Abraham that the sin of the Canaanites would reach a level that could not be tolerated and that God would give them over to Abraham's descendants. And it's come to that time where Canaanite is so vile that it's time for them to be destroyed. All right, next we have a recap from season six, episode nine in the book of Joshua. And it's about Caleb, Othniel, and Aksa. And it's reiterated here because these uh, three are examples of Israelites with aspirations for what God promises, contrasting to what's going to come after them. Verse nine, after that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country of Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kirath Arba, and defeated Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kirath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Ashka in marriage to a man who attacks and captures Kirath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Ashka to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in Negev, <laughs> give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. <laughs> So I've got it. I've got a 14 year old girl who does this to her dad. So that's why I can read it in that tone. Daddy, give me this, Daddy, please, can you please? please. And he'll just she's wrapped around oh, his little gosh, finger and he got a love anything it. she has. <laughs> this story is probably reiterated here to remind us of how this power couple came to be, because Othnia will become the first judge. But don't miss the subtle purity of heart that sets this family apart from the others. They believed God's promise and they kept his covenant. Their focus, like Joshua's, was to execute God's command to claim the land. And their desire was to live in the land of milk and honey and make it productive. So Caleb offered his daughter, first in the story, to any man who could capture Kirath. His motive was that he wants for his daughter a man like him who will courageously be obedient to God's commands and reap the rewards of God's promises by taking the land. That is a great motive. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's zealous for God and he wants his daughter to marry someone zealous for God. Now, Othniel goes for it and wins the prize. His motive is he admires Caleb and aspires to be zealous for the Lord like him. What better way than to marry into this esteemed family? And that's, Caleb was like the it family. Remember, Caleb and Joshua were iconic men, bigger than any influencer you know today. <laughs> they were the only ones alive who had come out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, 
and saw the quaking Mount Sinai. So they were like warriors, you know, and still fighting. So Othniel's motive is is pure. He wants to be a part of this family. He wants to be like Caleb and you can't blame him. Aksa, the daughter, then proves that she is a chip off the old block of her father, Caleb, by aggressively going for more, by being industrious, Her motive in her request, she demonstrates that she is eager to settle in the land and not just settle there, make it a prosperous venture. She's going to make the desert a land of milk and honey by siphoning off those springs. I don't know how she's going to do it. She's creative. All three of these Israelites were aggressive for God's promises, and they are a stark contrast to those who come next because they are grabbing hold of the promise. And they're willing to put the work in too. They're not just like taking a hand out here and, oh, here's your land. And, oh, no, he, Othniel's going for more. He's going to marry into the best family in the land who has the best property because Caleb got a special portion. And then knowing that it goes to the inherit the, the kids, everything gets inherited by the kids. And then the daughter's going, well, yeah, but you know, this, this is desert land, bud. We got to make, we got to do something with it. And she asked for the Springs. She's smart. So there it is right there in the Bible. For God, good enough is not good enough. God no, wants you can, to reach for more. He wants you to reach for more. And um, and that's a great question for us. Do you live aggressively for God? Do you aspire to claim his promises and keep his covenant and, and have skin in the game? And that's what they were doing. They were getting skin in the game. Okay, next, we have an example of foreigners with aspirations for God's promises. So these are people who aren't even Israelites, but believe in the the promise. Verse 16, the descendants of Moses's father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Okay, I love that these people from our past are popping up. The descendants of Moses's father-in-law, Jethro was his name, if you were with us, went to live in an area near Caleb's daughter. This is new information to the story about Caleb. Now we met Moses's father-in-law law way back in Exodus season two. He was a good advisor to Moses in Exodus 18 and worshiped God with Moses. So this is somebody who is not an Israelite who has come to believe. Now, Numbers 10, Moses invited Jethro's son, his wife's brother, Hobab, to join them and live with them in the promised land. That was back when Moses was thought he, he was he had a direct flight to the promised land instead of a 40-year um, five, 10, 20 layover <laughs> journey. Now, Hobab at the time declined, but this is probably another generation later. Here, we see that these foreigners, these Kenites, hear that Israel has finally claimed the land and they go up from the city of Palms to join them in the promise that they realize came from God because it's now coming true. The Kenites, it's so interesting, do not disappear. They're going to reappear in our story. Um, because a famous Kenite woman will surface in just a few chapters. So you'll have to stay with us. Now, the obedience of Caleb's descendants and Jethro's, who weren't even Israelites, form a strong contrast, like I said, to what follows. And what follows is the Israelites' half-hearted faith in God, resulting in half-hearted obedience to God. Confession. 
when I was writing this, I got to tell you, I was very convicted. The coming stories of half-hearted faith are super convicting. To me, at least they were. I would like to think of myself as an AXA. AXA? Is that how you said your name? However, if I analyze my days, I am more often half-hearted in the way I use my time and resources, half-hearted in my pursuit of God's promises and purpose for my life. Titus 3 is like a blow to the gut regarding this because we were saved for a purpose and with a promise just as the Israelites were. Titus 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. It is so easy as we move forward in Judges to judge them (laughs) because they just make these unwise choices. Mm -hmm. The Israelites were asked to obey and promise the land if they did, but they were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by passions and pleasures, just like Titus warned us. They did not trust God. Everyone did as they saw fit. Well, we are asked to obey and promised eternal life. We must trust and obey, devoting ourselves to to what God sees fit. Well, you started this out by talking about the pattern that happens, Mm -hmm. how there's peace in the land, and then they start to have this disobedience. And isn't that sometimes it's, it's kind of like apathy that happens to us when we're going through a season of just content? Can't you just kind of sometimes Slip. feel yourself like getting apathetic and not being as close to God as maybe you could? And then there's a crisis and then you're like, oh, God, please help oh, me. Oh, yeah, help me. It's oh, my gosh. Exactly that's exactly so, the pattern that happens that, in this book. That's what they're going to do. So the question is, where is your faith right now? Whole or half-hearted? Convicting. You're right. (laughs) I know. Got me. All right. Continuing on in verse 17. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zapath. And they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ikron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. All right, that vintage is the southern tribes, Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin. Next is a recount of the northern tribes. And listen carefully. Verse 22. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. 
When they sent the men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, show us how to get into the city and we will see to it that you are treated well. So he showed them and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built the city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shean, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nehaol, so these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Aku or Sidon or Alab or Akizib or Helba or Apek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Alna. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Amar became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Herez, Ajalon, and Sha'albim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. There's a pattern there. Okay. Nobody drove them out. So track with me here. The book of Judges begins by looking backward and recounts how the tribes had failed. But check out the spiral downward in this in this whole section that Heather just read. So it started with Judah, who did not drive out the people from the plains, but no mention of the Canaanites living among them. So, okay, they didn't totally drive them out, but there are no Canaanites living among them. Next, we have four tribes. Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. And Zebulun did not drive out the Canaanites. But in all four of these tribes, the Canaanites, did live among them. All right, next two. Asher did not drive out the Canaanites. Naphtali did not drive out the Canaanites. But for these two tribes, it got even worse because it says they lived among the Canaanites, Mm. implying the Canaanites had a stronger presence than they did. The last tribe that was mentioned, it says the Amorites confined the Danites. This is the worst tribe. They couldn't even make a dent. The Amorites oppressed them and put them right where they wanted them. So there was this spiral down with each tribe. The list of tribes descends into greater and greater failure to seize the land they were promised. Now that's just eight tribes are listed. What about the other four? Because we know there's 12. Well, Simeon's territory we know is in Judah, so they're kind of probably counted along with them. Reuben and Gad, we learned in the book of Joshua, were often treated like second class citizens because their territory is on the wrong side of the river and 
and technically not part of the original promised land. So they're not even mentioned. And Issachar, I am not sure why they aren't mentioned. Maybe the author just forgot them. No, no commentary had anything to say about that. But there you go. That's all 12. And that's the spiral down. The conundrum here is that God said that the victory was already won before they even started. However, the way these verses were written, it sounds as if the tribes just couldn't do it. It was impossible for them. Judah was unable because people of the plains had chariots of iron. Manasseh couldn't because the Amorites were determined. And the others just didn't do it, period. Didn't say why. Well, why didn't they do it? God had promised success and given the formula for success way back in Joshua 1. It said this, Joshua 1 verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That was Moses's formula for success. And Joshua, the concise military man, a few words, summarized the formula for success in the promised land at the end of the book of Joshua in chapter 23. So they actually heard it twice. This is what Joshua said. Joshua 23, verse five, the Lord, your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord, your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The reason the Israelites failed is they didn't believe God would do what he said he would do. Their lack of faith opened the door to fear. As a result, they were not strong and courageous as Joshua had commanded. The life threatening risk of war was too big in their eyes. It was to them impossible to win against the Canaanites. So from their perspective, they did their best, but just couldn't drive them out. Now, from God's perspective, they could have, they just didn't trust him to do it for them. And I get that. Following God is often radical and requires risk. And like the Israelites, we are at best faithful, but flawed. Question for us is this, do we have enough faith to overcome the fear of doing what God asks of us? Like letting go of a relationship when we desperately want to be married. How about letting go of a career to pursue work we feel called to do? How about letting go of the unknown by expanding your family through adoption? These are not easy life decisions, 
but then no decision is easy without God. So what flaws keep you from obeying? Are you often faithful and sometimes flawed? Or are you sometimes faithful and often flawed? Whether it was fear or procrastination or lack of resources like weapons or whatever the reason, it doesn't matter because all the Israelites really needed was God to drive out the Canaanites, but they didn't trust him. And the author of Judges is making a statement here that all of the tribes fell short of the goal and all of the tribes will have consequences. Now in the next episode, we will have our first angel sighting of the season and there will be more in the book of Judges, I think four in total. This visit, however, won't be a happy one. In fact, by the time the angel leaves, the Israelites are all in tears. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.